Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Kristen McCarthy, and I'm the Director of Grants and Operations at FMEP, where I also author our weekly report on settlements and annexation. On this episode, we are going to dive deep into Israeli annexation of West Bank land, which is an underappreciated motivating force of the authors and champions of the pro-judicial reform movement. We're going to tackle what annexation has looked like previous to the current government and the recent transformations that have fueled the acceleration of annexation in a myriad of ways. I'm so, so glad to be joined by Shira Livni today. Shira is the Human Rights in the Occupied Territories, the Director of the Unit for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories at ACRI, the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. Shira holds a BA in History and Political Science from Tel Aviv University and a Master's in Conflict Resolution from Georgetown University. You can find Shira's full bio and more about ACRI um, on the page for this episode, which will be linked in the show notes. So make sure to check that out, where I'll also post a bunch of resources. Shira, thank you so, so much for joining us today for this podcast. I know everyone's so busy <laughs> doing a million things, and it, it really means a lot that you've taken the time today to help us unpack annexation. Happy to, and thank you for having me. Okay, so let's first set the scene. I, can you give us just a brief recap of the legal status of the West Bank? And for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to set aside Gaza and East Jerusalem. Um, so what is the legal status of the West Bank under international law? I know Israel has maintained a military occupation of that land via its military, not its domestic governmental bodies like the Knesset and the Prime Minister's office and yada yada. Um, the Israeli government, its courts, and for the most part, its elected officials have until recently refrained from passing laws and legal decisions which bring the occupied territories under its direct rule, which would be de jure and its annexation. So what do we need to understand about this legal framework um, of occupation in order to understand annexation? So feel free to add to that very, very brief um, framework, which I think is just an important starting place for this conversation. So let's start about with talking about occupation, all right? So legally, occupation is a neutral phrase, if you will, right, or expression. It basically says that military occupation or belligerent occupation, right, whatever you want to refer to, describe, is describing a situation on the ground after usually a war or any kind of military conflict when a, a, a certain power or a state, right, apply military rule or regime over a territory that it conquered after or during the conflict, right? And since the military, the occupying force, sees the residents uh, of the occupied territory as enemies and vice versa, they see the, the army as the enemy as well. The international law basically had certain principles that apply in order to make sure that that situation of occupation is done with certain limitation in an illegal fashion, right? Um, and when we're talking about occupation or the law of occupation, if you will, we have three main principles or rules, if you will. And that is that the, first of all, trust check, right? The occupied territory is being held as a trust uh, by the occupier, by the occupied force, occupier, sorry. And that force has to kind of run that territory or govern the, the territory as uh, somebody that that, his role or its role is to protect the, 
basic welfare and interest of the local population, the ones who've been there before and consider protected, while balancing their like interest or welfare with the security needs of the occupying force within that territory, right? That is the first very important principle. The second one says it's temporary, temporality, as they call it in, you know, law and uh, judicial uh, language. It's a temporary situation. Once the need to occupy the land will be over because we resolve whatever conflict there was, it will be done, All right? Um, and the third one that is pretty much like the result of the first two is that because it's a trust ship and it's temporary, then the occupied force cannot apply sovereignty. In other words, it can annex the land. Right? Because annexation is a, is a one-sided uh, move that doesn't take into consideration the rights, the interests of the protected population. Um, so basically, that's a situation of an occupation. Okay? The occupier is the trustee, the temporary trustee of the territory, and can't have like one-sided uh, sovereignty over the land. Because of those kind of basic principles, if you will, there are certain prohibitions, right? Certain limitations. The main one usually considered to be that you can't, as the occupying power, you can't transfer your own population into the occupied territory, right? That is one of the most basic notions of occupation. Why, right? Because the international law understands that when you move your own population into a territory, what will happen is that you will start as like the you know, governor of the land, you would start to prefer their interests because they're your people, right? It's a very natural kind of assumption. And this is why you are not supposed to transfer your own population into the occupied territory, right? And this is why you also don't suppose you are not allowed to annex because then you will uh, apply your own interest to that territory that was not yours. And that will add towards a kind of, you know, uh, a land incentive. Wars are not, will not just be about, you know, dispute over maybe, you know, territorial lines or whatever infractions, but they will also be about land grabbing. And that was something that the international law kind of tried to uh, uh, stop in a way. I won't say successfully, but try. Right? So this is like the basic framework that we have in terms of uh, occupation and what does it mean in the international law. But then we have to ask yourself, well, what, how is Israel interpreting that whole situation? Right? So we would say that according to international unity, according you know, to the international law community and so forth, the situation in the West Bank is a situation of occupation very straightforward, right? The international law applied and really not a lot of questions. But since the beginning of the occupation, 1767, Israel has kind of applied, let's say, a vagueness policy, right? In a sense of like, what is the legal status of the West Bank Israel was like? Well, it's complicated. Uh, basically saying that the territory of the land, the West Bank, is a liberated uh, territory because it was never a part of another state before. 
okay? And this is why Israel doesn't recognize the applicability of the Force Geneva Convention, the one that is kind of um, specifying or detailing the, um, the rules of occupation we just talked about, including, of course, the prohibition to move your own population into the occupied territory. I would say then, just to kind of you know, add another complex into our already complex situation, that the Israeli court did recognize the fact that Israel have what we call belligerent occupation over the territories, right? And the, the international law applied in that case. But the official policy is like, it's complicated. Well, I think it's, it's you're bringing up so many interesting points because there's how international law theoretically speaks to what's happening in the West Bank. And then there's how Israel is like not, I mean, it's implementing it not in the way that international law says, but not to give Israel credit, there are ways that Israel, to your point, that the courts have said this is a belligerent occupation. The status quo for many, many years in Israel has been that the West Bank is under a military occupation, that it's military rules that place. And of course, there's exceptions and it's not as nothing's as clear and easy as <laughs> as um, as that. But there has been this infrastructure of governance separate from the Israeli governments that's dealt with the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and that's part of what's changing right now. This there's this bureaucratic transformation that's happening um, to to kind of make it, the Israeli government sovereign over the whole territory and and to kind of deconstruct the infrastructure of occupation government. But I want to get to that second. First, I have to ask you. You started talking about how Israel has not fulfilled international their international legal obligations um, over the West Bank. You started talking about settlements and transferring um, their domestic population to the West Bank. Tell me more, what has annexation, de facto annexation, and maybe you can explain de facto de jure, I know you're not a lawyer, but um, just a brief summary. I'll do my best. Yeah, what has that, what has annexation looked like up until say earlier this year when the new government started all of these radical transformations? All right, so very basically, right, like there is a whole kind of a legal debate about annexation. I won't go into it because honestly, it's like a whole new podcast. But basically, de jure annex annexation is official annexation. It's an official declaration by the Israeli government that is like applying its sovereignty over the West Bank, Area C. We don't know exactly what they want, right? And of course, always remember when we're talking about the West Bank, we're also including the Jordan Valley there, right? Which always the prime candidate to be first to be annexed. And the de facto annexation basically means like practical or on the ground annexation, right? Stuff that happens um, by changing how the reality is looking on the ground, changing the policy that is being implemented without officially declaring, right? And that is something that has been going on for set for quite a while, right? For at least I think we can say a decade, if not more, some will say from the beginning of the occupation, it's kind of, you know, up for debate. But we would, we can say that basically from the start of, of the occupation, Israel policy a lot of the time was like establishing facts on the ground, not necessarily declaring them out loud, right? Because Israel has always been tried to kind of toe the line between 
what is our interest in that area in sense of like our stronghold over it and we want it to be like a greater stronghold on it most because of security reasons but also because territorial reasonings not to mention natural natural resources but also very aware to the fact that there is international scrutiny there is international like uh, pressure and criticism with regard to what are you doing with this territory that we don't think that belong to you. But we definitely have seen in the last few years more and more attempt to kind of push forward those steps of what is being referred to as creeping annexation, de facto annexation, annexation is move, everyone choose their own kind of term, right? But basically what we're seeing more and more attempt by the Israeli government to push forward a policy that is strengthening Israel's Israel control over the land, right? Expanding the settlement enterprise um, and basically creating a situation that is no longer temporary, right? Remember our first principle, temporality. And we are kind of, you know, er eroding that situation. Obviously, one of the most gross violations uh, is establishing the settlements because, as we said, you are not supposed to do it according to international law uh, because they perpetuate and establish the Israeli law hold over the territories and creating a situation as we started talking that the land is not held in a trust for the benefit of the protected population, the Palestinian, but the military regime actually act. Its official policy is to prefer uh, the interest, both political and civilian interest of the residents, of the Israeli residents, right? Of the residents of the occupied power. And you can see it in like in almost every YouTube that you will see Palestinian documenting soldiers asking them what you're doing here when we're like seeing settlers around, they will say we are protecting the settlers. Right? And that is like the most you know, basic thing that you can say, well, something is very wrong here because it's not how this is supposed to work. But I will also say this is not the only way that Israel is pushing forward uh, with what we call creeping annexation or annexation, however you want to call it, right? Another part of it is that those settlements are not under the military law, right? Palestinians in the occupied territory in area C are all under the military law. This is the law that they have to follow in their daily life. Settlements and the settlers are actually, uh, uh, what the law that is applied to them is the Israeli law, right? That was being uh, enforced through military orders that basically said, created those kind of, you know, if you will, bubbles of Israel, Israeli, let's say, mini sovereignty or personal sovereignty, basically, creating a situation where each settler kind of, you know, goes around surrounded in a halo of the Israeli law with all the rights that giving them. So you have a situation where you have two law systems on the same territory already, right? Uh, one with all the protection and the right given to a person with a full political status, and the other one is a military regime, very restrictive and very oppressive. Another very clear um, uh, step, an excellent step, if you will, is um, pushing out Palestinian residents from Arab 
right, in order to kind of strengthen the Israeli hold. So you're pushing out the protected residents. You do it by electric planning. You do it by the refusal to issue building permits, by demolitions, by preventing access to water, to land, by closing a lot of land with military order. Not to mention that you also uh, kind of strengthening your hold on the land when you use its natural resources. It's mining, it's water, all those kinds of stuff. And you do it not for the interest of the protected population, but for your own. So you can see settlements and settlers and the application of Israeli law over them. You can see that displacement or the pushing out of Palestinians through various bureaucratical means, right? Oh, it's always like under the guise of the law, right? but it's also a policy. You will not give a permit as easily to a Palestinian and you give it to a settler. You know, the numbers are, are amazing when you look at them, like when you compare the numbers of what Palestinians get in Palestinians. And it's done also by using the resources of the land to your own, kind of, you know, your own benefit. Excellent detailed description. I think there are so many facets of what annexation has looked like that are not fully appreciated. Sometimes we just think of the settlement or the outpost, but it's the discriminatory building policies, which I hope to get to later. You know, roads, road construction, transportation, annexation, exactly. um, the growth of industrial zones, the checkpoints, the separation barrier, of course, is a huge one that, you know, mm -hmm. is not the tension as it should these days. Um, so there's so many things, but I want to ask you, and again, this is not to give credit to Israel for anything, but what have up until this year, what has been the limitations on Israeli annexation or aspirations for annexation? And here I'm thinking, you know, of the Oslo Accords and how the West Bank has been divided under the Oslo Accords into three areas, A, B, and C, with C being 61% of the West Bank, where Israel retained, was given by the Oslo Accords, civilian and um, security control over, and area B's or B and A being more where Palestinians live in their in their areas. So how does the Oslo Accord kind of talk to us about what Israeli annexation has been limited by over the past many years, which will tee up our next conversation? All right. So I would say that obviously the Oslo Accord, as you said, has limited the expansion of those kind of efforts beyond Area C. Not completely. We will dive into it in a bit without kind of, we'll start talking about what they're planning ahead. But basically, most of the things that I talked about before in terms of how they're pushing forward annexation happen almost completely in Area C, right? They're controlled by the Israeli military, both civilian and uh, military. Militarily, which means that the Palestinian Authority had, I wouldn't say completed autonomy because that's just not right, not correct at all, but they had certain autonomies and certain aspects of life, right? Civilian mostly, uh, you know, managing the day to day life in areas of A, A and B, and also providing services to Palestinians in area C, right? But I would say that that's not necessarily because that was a limit, limitation for Israel, but more of like, why would you, we, um, you know, uh, govern the Palestinians when we can have like another, a contractor to do it, right? Like obviously the PA is not just a contractor, it's like an entity with its own aspiration and everything. But in terms of like, when you look at how that benefits Israel, you know, they don't have to deal with it. They don't have to deal with the daily reality of, of uh, providing civilian services for Palestinians. They are basically after the Oslo Accord kind of turned into the go-between, 
right, between what the Palestinians ask in terms of like permits, what we need, like access to land, uh, you know, going uh, permits to work, permits to build, whatever, and like the military itself in terms of what will it allow in terms of security policy, land policy, and so forth, right? Like the civil administration became kind of the go-between instead of the one who actually providing all the services. Um, but yes, but also for does provide certain limitation on what Israel can and can't do within the West Bank in terms of it's also beyond like the you know bureaucratical ins and outs, it also creates a certain normative, right, framework, right? That in the end, hopefully, those this area will become a Palestinian state. So it kind of declared that the situation is temporary, right? We are in the in-between stage. Unfortunately, the in-between stage is now like 20 years on go, yeah. even more. Okay. Um, and I would say that another thing that I wouldn't say was complete deterrence, but deterrence in certain aspect is the Israeli Supreme Right. And I believe we'll talk about more when we'll talk about, you know, the judicial overall and how it's, you know, very much connected to the, the annexation policy of the Israeli government. But when you see an attempt like we had a few years back of what was called the regularization law, right, that basically attempted to kind of retroactively regularize all the outposts and the illegal uh, uh, building within settlements, the Israeli the Israeli Supreme Court said, "All right, <laughs> that's too much." Okay, yeah. like when we're talking about private lands and when we're talking about like an overhaul of you know um, regularization of illegal uh, building, that is too much. We can do it case to case basis, but not like an overhaul policy. Yeah, I think what's so interesting is all all that you've said what's happened since oslo and how oslo is kind of um not limited but there's a sense of a framework there and and licenses some israeli actions in area c and why israel hasn't yet for the most part kind of entered areas b and a in the same way um that's all happening on the governmental level meanwhile settlers and radical settlers and their ideology are pushing all of these campaigns and all of this um, public opinion that says Area C is ours. First, it was the settlement blocks. We'll never give up the settlement blocks. And then it's Area C is ours to where now the annexation of Area C in Israel is like a given. <laughs> so they've kind of moved on and to the next target, which, which I'm going to ask you. But mm -hmm. what's truly harrowing for, for those of us watching this is now those radical settlers who for so long have pushed, pushed annexation and done the groundwork to normalize this idea and, and to get government support for this idea. They are the government. <laughs> they are the government. First and foremost, um, I, I want to ask about um, the new, the, about Basil Smotrich, who has gotten a lot of press, but I want to review who he is, what his powers are. Um, readers of my settlement report, I'm sure will be very familiar with, with yes. him and, and his new powers. Um, so can you please just walk us through that of what he is, what the settlement administration mm -hmm. is, and and, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best, okay? But let's just start with the fact that what we like to call radical is no longer radical. It's the mainstream now, right? Because it's, they're very much part of the government. They're very much part of, you know, the policy uh, making process. 
So if you want to talk about Smartreach, I think he is probably uh, one of the most outright, like, classic representative of the settlement. Right, grew up in a settlement. Uh, he was like the uh, uh, operation director of the Ring of Fame organization, which is very much pushing toward like extending Jewish settlements in the time of the disengagement uh, from you know Gaza and parts of the West Bank. He was actually arrested um, in charge to kind of attempt to kind of disrupt this. Um, he is like very much you know in the core of the ideological movement of uh, what they call the religious Zionism, right? And also we have to remember, it's not just about the West Bank, right? Like a core part of it is basically that the Jewish people have rights to all part of the land of Israel, but it's also about Israel becoming an halakha state, like a Jewish law state, or maybe modernized one, but still a Jewish law state, right? Uh, Obviously, they are a big supporter of the legal reforms because they are weakening kind of the court and giving more power to the government. And they're also very much he and you know his party, they're against equal rights to the LGBT community and you know to the Palestinians within Israel. Like it's not just about uh, the, the territories, we have to remember, right? It's much bigger than that. Um, and so when we're talking about small leagues of power, not just he, but you know, his whole party got, right? Like, first of all, it was part of the coalition agreements, right? I'm sure, like, you mentioned it before in your, in your podcast, but the coalition agreements before, right, in pre previous elections usually were not as detailed as it was this time. They were more like of a declaration of intent and sort of promises that make it, but this time around, there was like a whole detailed work plan that was, you know, uh, laid out in those kind of agreements. Uh, and they was very specific in what they promises, including like uh, in, uh, the implication of sovereignty, Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank, right? Including settlement expansion, including regularizations outpost, and also significant changing in the structure of the military governance over the West Bank. Those were the promises that were made within those coalition agreements. And I have to say, they're doing a pretty good job at full through, right? And I think one of the things that it's very important to understand, and you know, I keep saying it almost every time that I get to talk with people from the international community, this is not like really a lot of time we used to talk about us in terms of like a political power grab, right? People kind of try to have as much power as they can, but we have to remember this is not about just to have more power. This is about having the political power to implement a very clear ideology, right? It's a very clear, some religious, some, you know, uh, uh, national ideology regarding how the future of Israel needs to look like in terms of not only sovereignty over the West Bank and hopefully, you know, also, you know, returning to some part of Gaza and so forth, but also in terms of, Jew of Israel as a Jewish state first, right? And that is something that is very important to remember when we're thinking about what is going on, how is everything is related to each other. Now we're talking about what Smutlich got then not only he is now the minister of finance, which is a lot of like power and responsibility and you know controlling a lot of like the funds who is getting what, um, he also got the position 
that is also really weird to say in English, but I'll do my best. But he is like the minister within the Ministry of Defense, right? He's not the defense minister, but he is a minister within the ministry. And basically, uh, what he got, like, there was a lot of back and forth about it. Like, it's a little bit different than what he was first promises, promised, but uh, uh, in the agreement that was done between Smotrich and God, which is the uh, Minister of Defense, what they agreed that Smotrich and his role as the, like, the additional minister, if you will, right, he will be responsible to what they call the civilian aspects, right? They have whole, like, they have a chart and they have, like, a whole list of what is considered civilian, what is considered security, right? Smotrich is getting everything that is uh, civilian. He's also going to appoint a deputy to the civil administration that will be a civilian, not a, mil not a military man, right? He's going to be, and an under him, um, it's, uh, there is what they call the administration, the settlement administration, right? Now, it's kind of confusing in English because settlements mean a lot of things, different things in Israel. It's not necessarily just settlements as we know it, but like the the settlement in the sense of like residency, like, uh, you know, expanding residency. And, but anyway, the point here is that this new administration, right, is going to get a lot of power on issues of building, planning, construction, enforcement within the civil administration. So heritage site, um, um, confiscation, uh, demolitions, those kind of things, like seem that considered civilian, right? But it's actually like the day-to-day -day life. Um, they're going also um, to uh, lead a reform that is called equal citizenship. It's something that started actually in 2014, if I remember correctly, but kind of was halted, but it's going to kind of get renewed. That the base premise there is how are we, how can we improve the services the sectors get? through government offices, basically like um, privatized is not the right word, but civilized, if you will, the military regime, right? Like everything that the military was responsible is going to be now transferred into government hand, basically very much like uh, aspect of applied sovereignty, if you will, right? Um, and regulating outpost and also expanding the application of Israeli law over settlement through military orders uh, and then just some of it. Another big aspect that I'm going to mention before like stopping because it was a lot that and a very important part of it is that the whole what we call legal advisors or legal counsel right to uh, the military military commander with every aspect that is now considered civilian is going to be transferred to this new settlement administration, right? Which basically means that the people who advise, give advice regarding to what is lawful, right? Are no longer going to be uh, uh, people who were trained by the military according to international law and their obligation, but are going to be people, civilians who were, uh, you know, uh, hired or contracted by Smotrich and his people to promote Israeli interests. Now, are Smotrich's powers limited to Area C? Is there any territorial limitation on him? 
Well, currently, yes, they're limited to area C because of, you know, the Ulster Court and what they limited uh, the civil administration, right? Basically, what he got was the civilian uh, areas of the civil administration in Kogat. So right? this was like... Yeah. So given the... Um... I mean, it's it's quite breathtaking, the transformation that has occurred over the past six months um, and the changes to the governance structure that has now put Basil Osmotrick. I mean, we call him the de facto sovereign, the governor of the governor, of, of for the sure. Bank. He's the governor. Yeah. So, I mean, has Israel annexed Area C? That's a good question, right? Um, because when you work with uh, people in the legal field, right, everything is complicated, right? And <laughs> it's always about how you interpret the, the law. But I would say it's complicated mostly because a lot of what annexation is about is about official declaration. Without an official declaration, it's kind of hard to kind of say that specific step is what, you know, is now the jura annexation. I would say that you know what's happening here obviously causing a very uh, lively debate among you know both human rights uh, community and the international law community are like when can you actually say that annexation happened when you don't have an official you know declaration what is like the criteria what is the threshold right and for example one of the claims that I think is actually very uh, I, I find a lot of logic in it that annexation happens when you see changes in the character of the governance, governance of the territory in several levels, right? When you see a change in the declarative level or the policy level, right? And we achieve and what, what is the norms or the policy, when you see a change in how the structure of the governance work. And when you see a change in the symbolic level, like who is representing the government in the territory, when all these happen together, you can say, okay, we probably cross the threshold. Now, I would say that, you know, as ACRI, like we haven't like been, haven't discussed it and have like an official position. So I can't like speak on the name of ACRI. I can say that in my opinion, even if we haven't maybe, you know, crossed this path, threshold yet because certain maybe symbols are not yet like transferring into civilian hands we are certainly like pushing the line very closely and probably just about to step over yeah it seems um and this isn't a comment on Akri or any other legal scholars I am also not a lawyer but it does seem like quite just confusing <laughs> to have to wait for a formal declaration while like it's already happened in practice but to wait for that formal declaration to be like aha annexation so it's okay. confusing for us as well don't worry yeah. like <laughs> you're like any day let's let's go like um, just say it say it already yeah it's yeah um okay so i want to move now to not just what the current state is but where we're going because we've, it's been alarming. Um, so I have just a vague, a general question for you about, about the current government, Smotrich and others. Like what is the vision of, of this government? What does the current judicial reform, how does that relate to annexation? I think there has not been enough, as I said in my intro, there has not been enough attention to 
one of the underlying motivating factors behind um, the justice minister and others in passing these anti-democratic judicial reforms is so that annexation can happen. So can you talk to us about, about that and how diminishing, specifically like how diminishing the role of the judiciary relates to annexation? Yeah, sure. So I think that I started like the current government definitely seeks to kind of accelerate the process of annexation of the West Bank, definitely declared it both in the, you know, basic line, guidelines of the government, they also in the coalition agreement, like they want Israel to sovereign over it. Obviously, they're going to wait for the right moment, right? They're not like, they're, sav they're savvy politicians. They know that they can't just, you know, go for it whenever. But it's important to remember that Weakening the, the court system, the Israeli court system, one of the goals behind it, right, is to remove certain legal blocks from fulfilling that annexationist policy, right? We talked about the regularization block that was not possible in, you know, a few years ago. If we'll have the, you know, override clause, for example, that there is an attempt to pass them, then the Knesset can pass that kind of law and the court won't be able to do anything about it. Right. And, and that has not been passed yet. The overall was different than the reasonableness that yes. has already been passed. Okay. Yes. So. They like they started like with a big bang and then they understood that maybe they need to kind of step back a little bit, you know, piece by piece. Uh, but who, but that is definitely right, like a big motivation, right? If we can pass laws that the court can't like overrule, then we can definitely push forward things that are contradictory to the international law and were prohibited until now. Right, by the court. We also have to remember another thing that till today, right, not always successful, but there were some restraint to the government actions, right, in the territories and the violations of human rights uh, of Palestinians through the work of both, you know, civil society organization, but also through the legal system, not just the court, but also through, you know, the gatekeepers. Right, the people who were like the legal advisors, the people who work in the justice uh, department, people who say, wait, 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 this is a problem. Like, I understand this is your policy, but you can't legally do it. Right, also the court, right, it sometimes says no. But, and even though that that restraint were, you know, limited, and, you know, we know that we have a lot of criticism <laughs> about the Israeli yeah. court system, but it existed. Right. And when you completely do an overhaul of how the regime works and you suppress the checks and balances system that kind of allow the balance to balance between the power of the government and what is like the public interest, the human rights that are protected, and so forth. Right? The first one who are going to get hurt are, you know, the weakest uh, communities and, you know, the people with no uh, status, the Palestinians, right, the minorities, because they will have no defenses left. And this is why when you want to kind of push forward a policy that when we started, like, you remember talking about switching the policy, not just about sovereignty, but a policy of, like, Israel, a Jewish dominance, right, or Jewish superiority over all the territory, right? And kind of transferring the balance between what is Israel is a democratic Jewish state and Israel is more of a Jewish state, then you need a weaker court. You need to have more power for the government. Yeah. Okay, we're running out of time. So I'm, 
we're gonna have to move quickly through this, but I, um, Smotrich has not hidden his agenda. I mean, he published a decisive plan in 2017 that has laid out in detail what he wants the future of the Israeli state to be mm-hmm. and that has no place for Palestinians in it. And I will include links to to that and to analysis of, of Smotrich's plan. But I, I, wanna, I wanna ask you, um, Smotrich already is is not satisfied with the powers that he's been given over Area C. He rejects Oslo, two states, confederation, coexistence. He's against all of these things. Excuse my dog in the background if you can hear him. All right, so can you just talk to us about how Smotrich is already dissatisfied with the, the powers that he's been given over Area C and what he's seeking next? Okay, so... What we know so far, right? Um, again, there is the big plan for Smartridge, and not just Smartridge in general. The big plan for the settlement wins. We can like talk about it in a minute. You know about what like the how their future, how they imagine the future, which is one thing. And there is like the current plan of what's going on. What is the practical step that they are pushing forward in order to kind of expand uh, the control, the Israeli control over uh, Area C, and now also into Area A. So in a discussion that was held within the Foreign Affairs and Defense or Security Committee uh, about two weeks ago, the title was uh, the PA Takeover Over Open Land. Which is a title that needs to be totally unpacked in a separate podcast. I know. Because of the delusion. (laughs) I know. And I would also say that we were like completely naive because we thought was once again, they are going to kind of talk about how the PA is trying to take over Area C. Right. And then we come there and we kind of find out very quickly that actually they're talking about something else entirely. They're actually talking about open land in area A and B. Right. And I will start by saying right, that we need to understand that currently uh, there are certain actions, enforcement action, if you will, that the military uh, commander is doing in area C but they always have to be justified by very specific security reasons. I think you mean area B, correct? And sorry, area B and A, sorry, my bad. Yeah. Yeah, so there is certain like very uh, specific action that he's doing in terms of like uh, enforcement or construction enforcement and kind of those things. Sometimes it's arrest, sometimes it's demolitions in areas A and B, but they have to be justified with very specific security reasonings, right? regarding the, the security priorities and, and uh, within the occupied territory, right? But what Smotrich and, you know, other people are saying within like the, the people who are trying to push forward the settle, settlement agenda is that those open areas, right? In, in open land, sorry, areas A and B have strategical importance, right? Importance for like the future territorial contingency of the settlements in Area C, right? I hope I've been clear so far. And in their opinion, what the Palestinian Authority is doing, right, is basically have its own agenda, right, its own strategy of taking over those open land in order to prevent the Jewish expansion Right? and kind of ensure its own like uh, territorial contingency. And basically you're saying, yes, it's maybe illegal according to the Oslo agreement, 
but it's a problem for us and it's a problem that we need to fix. How are we going to fix that problem? Right? How are we going to ensure that we can kind of protect and preserve those kind of open lands right, and protect our own Israeli interests? We'll do it, right? This is the Smotrich plan, how we presented it. We'll do it by changing the definition of what is considered to be a security reason for a military action, right? If until now, it was because there is a specific security need of the occupying force within the territory, now we are going to expand that, right? What is considered to be a legitimate security reason will also include, according to Smokrich, what he referred to as national security, adding the Israeli interest for that land, right? That means what they're trying to push forward, according to him, it will be brought to approval by the Israeli cabinet in the next month or so, right? Is a plan that will allow uh, him, his office, and uh, uh, possibly uh, the, minister, the Minister of Defense as well, to order a much broader uh, uh, enforcement over um, constructions in area A and B under the uh, uh, reasoning of national security, right? And, and, and to kind of, you know, uh, complete the, the move, if you will, you will, they are also uh, attempting to declare PA activities. We don't know exactly the whole range of activities that they refer to. We assume to relate mostly to construction and planning and building, but PA, but we can be wrong, but they do push forward as part of the plan, also declaring PA activity as hostile activity, which will allow them to put certain sanctions on those activities, financials and other sections, and very openly saying that they want to reduce funding, international funding as much as possible from the PA. Yes, it expands. <laughs> this is how, like the... Yes. This is how it expands. Um, this is the next step. And, and not to say that Israel, I think to your point earlier, hasn't been already active in areas A and B. I think, you know, the ongoing military raids that have, I mean, that's defined this year for Palestinians in the West Bank, that is all area A <laughs> and all area B. Um, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, another, another thing I cover regularly is archaeology and how archaeology in the West Bank has been weaponized oh, to sure. allow annexation, de facto annexation and incursions into areas in area B specifically. So kind of other things to, to pay attention to and factor in um, when we think about how Smotrich's insertion into the government and his role as a de facto governor of the West Bank is ever increasing the scope of annexation and the picture of what the future holds. And totally, you you are completely right. But I would say that another thing to notice, he's also the minister of finance, mm. right? Which means that he have a lot of power on the resources that are being allocated to different ministries. And it's not, you know, uh, a coincidence that uh, uh, the, the Ministry of Infrastructure or uh, Roads, I don't know exactly how to translate it, uh, committed, yeah, translation, committed to have a quarter of its budget in the next 10 years, right, 
allocated to uh, roads and transportation in the West Bank. It's but it's not an exception yet. <laughs> it's not an exception yet, but we're we're there. Yeah. So um, I have two questions I think are worth concluding with. Um, one is, what is ACRI doing? I mean, what ACRI is the preeminent civil rights organization in Israel. What approach are you taking to annexation? What what can be done? Well, I think our approach is let's say multilateral if you will like when we can we are mostly a legal organization by our core by nature but obviously when we're talking about the occupied territory it's always we always need to kind of shift our strategy a little bit because the situation there is very, it's very different but when we can attack some something in the courts we will right like the regularization law that is something that we together with our or other organization like petition the so obviously, if there will be certain plans or legislation that we will be able to kind of petition against, we will definitely do it. Uh, but I, I would say another big part of our work is also advocacy and information gathering within the Knesset, right? Is to go to those communities and find out what they're trying to do and make sure that everybody knows what they're trying to do. It's all speak out in those committees. And it's also to talk with and work with the, the very few MKs that were left that, you know, still believe that annexation is wrong. Like if you watch the, the discussion that we're talking about in the uh, Foreign Affairs and Security Committee, you saw Gilad Khalid there, one of the very last remaining MKs that is a very vocal opponent to annexation and the current policy uh, uh, within the government, right? Uh, so we're working with them as well. And of course, uh, when we're talking about the West Bank, Gaza, even East Jerusalem, the occupied territory, the international community is probably becoming, has always been an important uh, actor, but is becoming even more so in the current situation when we have less and less power within Israel to change the reality, right? So a lot of the work that we're doing is attempting to kind of communicate to the international right? What is going on? What is changing? Because when you don't have the official declaration, right? When you uh, don't always have like the, uh, this is our plan, this is what we're going to, to do. We have to take the day-to-day -day actions and to kind of portray in a clear way, what do they actually want? I would say that this current government is actually making our job a lot easier in the sense that they outright say what they want to do. Right, and it's become much more easier for the international community to understand where we're heading. But it's also becoming much more harder to stop it. Yeah. Well, Acri, you do incredible, incredible work that has impact beyond just just the interactions you have. I think Acri's work really fuels an entire ecosystem of organizations and human rights defenders that are that are working to stop annexation and, and protect Palestinian lives. So the question I want to end with is you are the director of human rights in the occupied territory. So what does annexation mean for Palestinian lives? Well, I would say that it's a big question because one of the questions is how will the whole like the annexation would look like in the end, right? But the first thing that we have to understand when we're talking about it, it means that it will make the occupation permanent, 
This is no longer something that you could say, temporary, don't worry, let's let's wait, let's build the country. No, we'll turn the occupation into a permanent situation, right? Um, and that also means that the person, that I'm sorry, the entity that is governing those areas that are being annexed is going to be the Israeli government, which the Palestinians have no uh, no kind of rights to elect, right, or to to uh, influence who is who sit there. No representation whatsoever. Um, not to mention when we're talking about annexation, then we mean that the, the Israeli law will be fully applied into you know whatever areas that are being annexed, which means first of all probably a lot of land is going to be confiscated, registered in a way that will, you know, prevent the, the original owners to have access to it, right? We also mean that if we are annexing certain uh, territories, all the services that they are probably using in, you know, areas A and B that maybe won't be annexed, but are given by the Palestinians, it will be much more problematic to get there because you can safely assume that if you annex, it will be borders, right? in this new annexed territory. So now you have to get from an area, right? That was annexed to Israel in order to maybe get the services that you need in another area. But all of that will be determined according to what status will they get? Will they get kind of temporary status with permits, right? In their own land, we're talking about the native residents of the land, right? Will they get kind of a permanent status and, or they will get temporary status permit? Will they become like the Jerusalemites, right? Like with a permanent residency, which is not full rights, but certain rights, and of course, still very much being discriminated against. But it's so it's hard to tell exactly all the impacts that are going to happen. But it's very clear that annexation, whatever form it will take, whatever status that will get, it will have an immense impact on. Movement, uh, uh, rights to movements, right? Uh, uh, the rights for land and property, uh, uh, the rights for education, um, access to water, access to services, like everything that I can like imagine that you know it's a basic right for our daily life is going to be impacted uh, by this uh, by this change because there will be literally no protections left. Yeah. Thank you, Shira. Um, this is more than just a legal question and a debate about whether it's annexation or not. There's Palestinians who have to live with the reality of de facto annexation every single day and what that means for their life and Israeli occupation and just the layers of, of deprivation of, of rights. So thank you for joining me for this conversation. I feel like we could go on for many more hours <laughs> on all of this. Um, but thank you so much for joining me and to our audience. Thank you for listening and for watching. Don't forget to follow Shira and Akri. You can find more information about them um, on the website. They're on Twitter, on Facebook. Sign up for the newsletter so you get all the wonderful Acri resources. Um, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever it is you subscribe to your podcasts so you don't miss any of the great content we're pushing out every week. Um, and with that, I'm going to sign off. This is Kristen McCarthy, and we'll be back with a new episode of Occupied Thoughts before you know it. Thank you. Take care.